All right, we're, we're in this Great Commission, Purpose and Mission series. Uh, I think this is week eight. What is the purpose of the Christian life? What is the mission of the church? And we learned right at the beginning, purpose of the Christian life. Let's find that in Matthew 22. Loving God and loving our neighbors. According to Jesus, all the law and all the prophets, the whole Bible, everything rests on these things. Loving God and loving neighbor. So when we ask what is the mission of the church, and we go to that famous passage that we are, I think this is week six in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we've got to remember that the end game is loving God and loving neighbor. So we, we have been in this for a while. This is, uh, we have this Sunday where we're going to talk about the last phrase in the Great Commission, which we'll read here in just a moment. And the next Sunday, we're going to look at the vision of the end from Revelation uh, 21. Uh, but I just before we even jump into today's passage, it's good for us to remember what Jesus said. All the law, all the prophets depends on, hangs on, loving God and loving our neighbors. So if you would, open your Bible to Matthew 28 or your worship guide that works. Uh, and if you would, stand for the reading of God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great commission. Lord, you promise that you never send your word out and have it returned to you empty and void. Lord, you promise to give us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us understand your word. And I pray that these things would take place here and now. Would your word have an effect on us? Would it change us? Would you, Holy Spirit, illuminate your word? Show us how this affects, should apply to our church and our time. Lord, all of this is for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're going to focus on this last piece. Jesus saying, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We spent time weeks ago on go and make disciples of all nations. We learned that. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, a student, a student follower. Uh, we make disciples not just here, but all nations, which means all people groups, all cultural groups. And that means some here and some far away. This is a global endeavor. We talked about how uh, baptism and teaching in the ongoing presence of Jesus, these three things he mentions after make disciples are 
part of the means by which we do the work. They're tools for disciple making. These are the instruments. So we make disciples in part by baptizing people, by uh, giving them the, 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 the mark of membership in God's people. And that's a, that's a grace thing. That's not an earn our salvation thing. We talked all about that. Talked about how Jesus calls us to teach his commands, not just what they are, but how to obey them. And that's part of what it means to make disciples of all nations. This third thing, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, these are, I, I think, the biggest challenge to understanding what Jesus is getting at when he tells the 11, I'm with you, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The biggest challenge for us understanding what that means is that it's such a nice thing to say. Uh, it's comforting. It feels right for Jesus in that moment to say, oh yeah, by the way, I'm with you guys. And that comfort, that's part of it. But there's a whole lot more to Jesus' promise to be with us, with his people, as we go about trying to make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey. So I want to show you some things about I'll be with you always to the end of the age that are easy for us to miss. Because I think they're really important for us as a church. First, and we sort of touched on this last week, the way Matthew writes this, uh, for us as Bible readers, he's sending literary signals to us for us to know where to put this. So last week we talked about how uh, Jesus, it says that he called the 11 uh, to the mountain that he would show them, right? And they went up on the mountain and then Jesus delivered this commission and then sends them out. And that's sort of an echo, a reflection, a literary allusion to Moses and the people of Israel. Moses went up on the mountain that God showed him. Moses, God's man, God's Prophet, God's representative to the people, he was on the mountain, and God, through Moses, delivered his law, his covenant, to the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here we have Jesus, God's man. Oh, oh, and by the way, God did that through Moses after God had delivered the people out of slavery, right? So God delivers the people. He sends his man on the mountain to deliver you know, his charge to the people, to, to the leaders of the 12 tribes. And we read this, and Matthew says, Jesus goes tells the 11, which we think we should think 12. Remember the temporary, it's a temporary vacancy uh, because of Judas. But he, 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 the leaders of his people, he had lots of disciples, but these were the, the, the leadership team. He takes the eleven on a mountain after he had delivered them from sin and slavery through his death and resurrection. He takes them up on the mountain and then delivers them a charge, a commission. And Matthew wants us to read it in that way. So if we think about when Jesus says, look, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. We should think about how God told Moses. And the people of Israel, look, guys, I'm going to be with you as you go out from this mountain. I'm going to be with you as you go into the promised land. Be strong and courageous. I, the Lord your God, will go before you. And Jesus says, behold, I'll be with you all the way to the end. 
That's like God with his covenant people moving into the promised land. It's beautiful. We think about it, we should think about it that way. This isn't just a, a nice thing for Jesus to say. Jesus is saying, I had given you the, the, the land before, like this, you know, I marked off boundaries and this is now the land of Israel. And, and I gave that to you and I was with you as you took it. But now the land, if you will, is the whole world. Now go fill it. Go into all of it, and I'm with you. Now, there's one piece of this that, at first glance, doesn't quite fit this Moses-Israel paradigm of understanding Jesus' words. I'll be with you. And it's the fact that, at, okay, when God tells Moses, or Moses and then Joshua, I'm, I'm going to be with you as you go into the land, you know, people knew God. They, they knew that God was a spiritual being. Uh, spiritual being is not bound by time and space. He's everywhere. So, yeah, of course he's going with us. He's everywhere. He could be with Moses, and he can be with me, and he could be over there, he could be going before us, he can be behind us, because God is spirit. Yes, that makes a ton of sense. But here, Jesus says, I will be with you. And Jesus, yes, he is God. He is fully God. But he's also a human being. And human beings can't be two places at once, right? So when Jesus says to the disciples, I will be with you, and then some time later, maybe a couple weeks, maybe 40 days, depending on the, how we fit all this with the other Gospels and with the book of Acts, but at least some, a short time later, Jesus ascends. He, uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem, he repeats the Great Commission. He says it a little differently. This time go to you know, Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. You'll be, you'll be, uh, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to, to, to on you and you'll receive power. And then he ascends. And then, it's, as it says in the book of Luke, he, he ascends into heaven to be with the Father. And then as we learn later, he's, he's sitting at the Father's right hand. So that's, and he doesn't cease to be a human being. There's no like reversal of the incarnation. He wasn't just human for a while. He's continuing as a human being. And we know that because in the book of Hebrews, it says that he is our priest forever. And to be our priest, he has to be one of us. So when Jesus tells these disciples, I'll be with you. And then a little bit later, leaves and descends. That seems a little weird. That doesn't fit the... Emmanuel paradigm that these uh, Jewish Bible readers would have understood. What's the deal here? Well, throughout church history, we've kind of tried to figure this out. How is it that Jesus, continuing as a human being, can be sitting on a throne in heaven, whatever that means, metaphysically, um, but also be with us? And there was a famous debate during the Reformation about this, specifically in reference to the table. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer who sort of became team captain of the Lutheran wing of the Reformation, hence the name, uh, he was like real big with like Jesus' metaphysical presence everywhere. And he, he 
found a way to sort of incorporate that into Jesus' humanity. Jesus is a new kind of humanity. He's everywhere. And Luther said that's how we know, that he's present at, in the sacrament at the table. And that satisfied a lot of folks. But there was this guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who was a leader in the Reformed wing. That's the wing that our church came from. And he was like, guys, Luther is way wrong. Uh, Jesus Christ is a human being, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not at the table. He's in heaven on the throne. And there's a famous story about Luther and Zwingli getting together at the Marburg Colloquy, and they get in a big argument, and Luther goes over to the table and pulls out a knife and carves, this is my body, into the table. He had a temper, uh, and it was this... The you know, conference was off, and it's become this, this story that we tell in church history lessons. But what it came down to for these guys was how can Jesus be in this place of all authority, which is essential to the Great Commission, remember? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How can he be sitting on a throne in heaven as our high priest, as king of the universe, Settled with the work done, but also be continuing with us like God went with the people of Israel. Now, uh, this is, well, of course I'm going to end the story this way because I'm a reformed pastor. But John Calvin comes along and he says, okay guys, I think I figured it out. Yes, Jesus is a human being, but in his divinity, he continues to fill the heavens. So yes, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, physically. Spiritually, he's with us, and he's at the table. And of course that makes sense. Thank you, John. Because, gee, because back in the old days with Moses, God was, where was God? He's at the tabernacle. But where else is God? He's everywhere can be in a place and fill the heavens. Now, here's why I went on this huge detour to give you a, a Reformation lesson about where Jesus is. It's because this truth, that he is a human being seated on a throne uh, in heaven, whatever that means in ultimate reality, it's local. And he's also with us spiritually. Is like the magic key that takes this promise, I'll be with you to the end of the age, from just being a nice comforting thing to say to being an essential source of life for us. See, comforting things are nice, but life is hard. Church is hard. We need more than comfort. We need empowerment. You guys know that you know, I have a, a, a brain and a vision thing that work together to make it almost impossible for me to drive at night. Um, you guys know that. And so many of you have been gracious and have given me rides. Um, every once in a while, I'll get caught in a situation where i got to drive at night. You know, I lose track of time. I'm stuck somewhere. Something happens. There's maybe an emergency, and i, and I got to do it. Uh, when I drive at night... It would be nice to have someone sitting next to me saying, Charlie, you can do it. That would be nice. But that's not really what I need. When I have to drive at night, what I need is for someone to sit next to me and either very actively 
describe everything that's going on and very actively watch me. Or, even better yet, just empower me by having me pull over and switch seats and actually drive the car in my place. And sometimes that's the, us as a church, that's, that's really what's going on. Jesus has given us this near impossible mission. Us, our little church. It's been through so much. And all of our little churches and even our big churches, COVID and culture wars, and all these, we're supposed to go to every people group and uh, make followers of Jesus and then teach them how to do it. And this just seems impossible. We need something more than encouragement. We need empowerment. Now, if Jesus is with us here among us, spiritually, but he is also physically as a human being, seated, sitting down, victorious in the place of ultimate victory and imperium over the whole universe. That comes with power. His throne is extended here by his spirit. You see that? Let me show you how this works out. I think there's two ways that, that I really want to highlight where the, the ongoing presence of Jesus, both in heaven and also with us, empowers us on our mission. Two big deal ways. First, oh, and if you're a note taker, this is, this is your thing. Uh, how does the ongoing presence of Jesus empower the church? Number one, the presence of Jesus puts weight Behind the church's actions. That's number one. How does the ongoing presence of Jesus in heaven and also with us, ruling as king but also here among us, how does it actually give us the power to do the things that he has asked us to do? Well, it puts weight behind our actions. In Matthew 18, that, that passage that we read earlier, that famous passage about conflict resolution. Um, man, it's so good because it's so practical, isn't it? It's like if, if somebody, if you got an issue with somebody, somebody's, you, you, you got you to go to them, right? Go to them solo. Don't tweet it. Don't go tell all your friends. Just go to them. And if that doesn't work out, you know, bring somebody with you and, that doesn't work out, and the group gets bigger. And, and it's such a practical tool Jesus gives us for conflict resolution. It's so practical and so useful and so wise as just a general rule for human relationships that actually we miss the point of the passage so many times we reference it. It's so easy to grab for that Matthew 18 conflict resolution thing. It's just a general guide for resolving conflict. But if we really look at it, we'll see that it's actually not what it is. Yes, the principle there, totally applicable and helpful and wonderful for conflict resolution. But it's not about conflict resolution in general. It's about conflict resolution in the church. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, if your brother sins against you. Not just some dude, not just anybody. If, and in the New Testament, when it talks about brothers and sisters, who's it talking about? It's talking about the church, God's people. 
He goes on and he says, if your brother, someone in the church, does something to offend you, go to that person. If that doesn't work, take somebody with you because we want to establish two or three witnesses, right? But then he says, if that doesn't work, take your brother where? Before the family? No. Before the community? No. Before the board at work? No. Before the church. Take your brother before the church. And then he says, if your brother refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Hmm. Gentile is somebody who's not a part of the people. Tax collector is somebody that is a part of the people but has chosen to step out, marking himself off. What Jesus says in that Matthew 18 thing is if someone in the church sins against you, take one person, take two people, then go before the community, the church, and if they still refuse, consider that that person is not a Christian. Now, (laughs) oh man, who in the world has any right to look at anybody and tell them, You are not a Christian. That is a heavy thing to say. How dare any of us look at someone else and say, you know what, in my judgment, I declare that you don't know God. Rendering somebody's testimony useless, passing judgment on somebody's spiritual state. But here Jesus says to do it. Oh, that's weird. That's rough, Jesus. How are we supposed to do that? And he goes on. Truly, I say to you, whatever you, plural, the church, bind on earth will will be bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now Jesus is creating a, a connection between the spiritual world and the physical world. Sound familiar? And then he says again, I say to you, if... Two of you agree about anything they ask. It will be done for them by the Father in heaven. Oh, now these people aren't just saying who's a Christian and who's not. Uh, They're actually getting God to do things for them. Wow. And then Jesus gives the key. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Who has the authority to say somebody isn't a Christian? Only Jesus. Who has the authority to tell God the Father what to do? Only Jesus. Who has the authority and ability to do something in the physical world that makes ultimate spiritual reality shift? Only Jesus. And here Jesus promises the community of the church that when two or three of us gather together in his name as his ecclesiastical body, he's the one doing the work. This is staggering. This is like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through us. Folks, if we go to the American embassy in France, say you're on a vacation in France and you need to do some American stuff, like get your passport renewed or register to vote or something like that, you go to the embassy. And once you step onto the embassy property, you are on American soil, right? The church, 
the gathered body of believers under the imperial authority of Christ is the embassy of new creation in this world. And each of us here, every church member, if your membership is registered at the embassy, guess what? You are an ambassador. Let's go back to the Great Commission. Jesus says, go make disciples. Teach people how to obey. Baptize. I'll be with you. Even to the end of the age. Jesus from his throne in heaven is giving his people imperial authority. This means that when the church does something, just putting Jesus' formula together here to speak broadly, when the church does something, Jesus does something. That's an incredible amount of power that God gives us. He is empowering our actions. So when we go out, remember, everything comes down to loving God and loving neighbor. When we go out to love our neighbors and serve you know, a community here in town, whether that's community of hope, uh, serving our houseless neighbors, or whatever we're doing, Jesus is doing it. Like they say, that we're the hands and feet of Jesus. I don't quite like that statement because Jesus has his own hands and feet. Remember, he's a human being. But something in there is true. He's acting through us. So, guys, I'll be with you as you go to take the whole world, like Moses and Joshua took the land. That comes with power. Here's the other thing. Number two. The uh, ongoing presence of Jesus with the church puts weight in front of our actions. Play with the metaphor here. First thing, ongoing presence of Jesus puts weight behind our actions. Now, the ongoing presence of Jesus puts weight in front of our actions. Just imagine that with me. If I was going to go out here and say we're going to have a little race, we're going to run down the street... Um, as long as, well, maybe if it wasn't, a, if it was a race, everyone would know I was slow because there'd be a point of reference, another runner. Forget it's a race. Say we all went out here and we just were running down the street. We could run pretty fast, right? But if we had to run down the street pushing something heavy, like maybe somebody's car in neutral, the running gets real slow, right? Well, the presence of Jesus, that divine imperial authority, it shouldn't just be the wind behind our backs, it needs to be the wind in our faces, the weight that we carry that slows us down. Let me show you what I mean. Huh. Well, when I, was, when I first got my driver's license, I was 16 years old, and my parents had this car. It was my mom's old car, and she got a new one, and instead of selling it, I passed it down to me. And it was a 91 Toyota Camry. It was awesome. And they, some Toyotas still have this. Uh, but one of the things I liked about the car is, you know, it's a Camry. Right on the gear shift thing, it had a little button that said ECT Power, which stands for Electronic uh, Controlled Transmission. And I, what is this button on? So I looked in the manual, and apparently, some Toyotas still have this. If, if, if the button is out, it's just a regular Toyota Camry. But if the button is in, it changes the uh, saying, you're looking at me, you're a mechanic. I'm going to say this wrong. If I do, you just correct me. Uh, if the button's in, it changes the way the gear shift works to where it shifts at higher RPMs. 
And the end, it's designed, you know, if you wanted to, it said this in the manual, 91 Camry, you can find one, you can see this. It says, if you want your Camry to handle more like a sports car, press the easy keypad. Uh, so when I drove, of course, that button was in. And I loved to pretend that it was a sports car. I hit the little power button. And uh, I remember one time a guy pulls up next to me in a Camaro. And I, I thought, we're on this country road. And I thought, well, I'm going to mess with this guy. And I rolled the window down. I said, hey, man, want to race? And he looks at me and he goes, yeah. <laughs> I pushed my ECT power button. And then I said, like, the, the light changed. And he, like, peeled out. And, and I felt like, you know, here I was on my Camry, and the button does hardly anything. Um, and it was funny. Uh, but here's the, here's the thing. I drove like a maniac when I first started driving. I pushed that button, and I went into, like, race car mode in my mind. Now, sometimes my dad would say, I got to go run to the store. Charlie, why don't you come? You drive. And it was my dad's way of checking in on my driving. Now, do you think I ever pushed that ECT power button when my dad was riding with me? Did I drive like a maniac when my dad was riding with me? Did I try to race guys in red Camaros when my dad was riding with me? No, I drove very, very, very carefully. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. I have all authority, and I'm, I'm riding with you. That should slow us way down. That should cause us to rethink our decisions. Listen to this. This is 1 Peter 5. Peter, the apostle, is writing a letter to Christians everywhere. It's about church stuff. And he says this. He's like, he's got to say something to the elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you. Okay? He says, as a fellow elder, as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Okay, that sounds about right. Exercise oversight. Yep. Not under compulsion. But willingly, as God would have you. That's, that's great. Peter is affirming the, the elders as the shepherds of the people. He's affirming their God-given power to lead. And then he says this. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says, church, go ahead. Get out there and operate with the divine authority that God has given you. Your gathered community, elders, lead. Younger folks, follow the elders. Go out there and do it. But those of you who are in charge, those of you who are leaders, don't be domineering. Be humble. Don't be proud. Why? Well, God opposes proud people. And also, you are a shepherd, but you're not the chief shepherd. There is another chief shepherd, and when he appears... That's your opportunity for glory. Not now. Later. 
You're not in charge. You, you feel the weight of this? That's like when uh, Paul said something similar to the Ephesian elders. He said, pay, pay, close, pay close attention to yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So let me put this plainly. When me, Pastor Charlie, or one of our elders, Christopher and Scott, or one of our leaders, or anyone here who has power and authority, uses it to dominate, uses it for self-gain, uses it proudly, guess who opposes them? Jesus. And where is Jesus? Standing right here among us. That should slow us down. We recognize that he has given us great authority, folks. We are agents of the kingdom. However, that's great authority to be handled very, very carefully. We've heard too many stories. There was another one that came on my news feed this week of a prominent, big, megachurch pastor who resigns from scandal covering up abuse, being domineering. It's easy to look at these stories and say, see, see how messed up the church is? See how God is, it's not real, God's not, it's just a bunch of domineering people. You know what's really happening in ultimate reality when we see a story about a bully resigning from ministry? Jesus did that to protect his flock. That should put holy fear in all of us. In the church, when we gain authority, whether it's me as a pastor or elders or committee leaders or grown-ups versus kids, uh, it's, authority sometimes looks like a pyramid. But in the kingdom, that pyramid is turned upside down. The higher you get on the authority ladder, the lower you need to go in humility and service. Why? Because Jesus is with his church. Jesus said in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which belongs to you in Christ. Like Jesus, he didn't consider his place of divine privilege something to be exploited. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, even to the point of death. But then in his resurrection, it still wasn't even him who exalted himself. It's because the Father raised him and exalted him as the name above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So in ultimate physical reality, the grounding for authority and for power, do you know what it looks like? It looks like a cross. It looks like a servant. So let's go back to the beginning. How does God empower us on this impossible mission? Well, he does it by giving us great power. Agents of his kingdom. Ambassadors for his throne. Because he's here with us. But he also slows us down. and keeps us from getting ahead of ourselves and uses church discipline as a means of grace. 
so that the, when the world encounters Jesus in this community, they encounter him as he chooses to express himself as one who is gentle and lowly at heart. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly at heart. Everything is about loving God and loving our neighbors. And as we make disciples toward that end, know that he has not left us as orphans. He is going with us into the land.